everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Uh, really glad to have you here with us. I know it's a beautiful day in Denver, and uh, it's a great day to be outside, but you're inside with us, and we're really glad that you're here. We are in week nine, I believe, of our series in the book of Genesis. Like, like Andy said, uh, we've been looking at how the story of the relationship between God and man has always been one of grace. And tonight, what we're going to be looking at is one of the most famous, one of the most controversial passages in the entirety of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, where God asks Abraham to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him on an altar. Uh, It is very famous, probably many of you, even if you haven't been in the church for a long time, have maybe heard of it before, maybe heard reference to it before. And if you're anything like me, if you took a religious studies course, uh, maybe growing up in college, or you watch TV, or watch South Park or something like that. You've seen some sort of uh, mocking of this story because it is very controversial. Even this past week, I was listening to a Jewish rabbi preach a sermon on this, and he sort of concluded that in the end, like the entire point of the story is that God is mysterious, God is far away in our struggles. God asks bizarre things of those who uh, want to follow him, and because of that, this is probably a story that actually would have been better if it hadn't been included in the Bible in the first place. So if you're here tonight, if you think that way, uh, if you have sort of philosophical objections to this story, let me just start on the front end and say I'm not going to get into those. This isn't an apologetics course. We're just going to teach the plain meaning of this text. And I believe that when you teach the plain meaning of this text, what you see are some very beautiful truths that really uh, relieve a lot of these tensions. But if you still have philosophical questions or objections or something like that, email me. We'll get together, have coffee, hang out. It'll be great. Okay? That sound good? The first time I heard this story was in college. I had a religious studies course where my professor told me that the point of this story is that God is both bizarre and far off when we struggle in the day in and day out life. And as I was struggling to study this text this week and make sense of it and wrap my mind around it, what I saw was not a God who was bizarre, not a God who was far off in the midst of our struggles and our difficulties, but instead a story that magnifies and puts on display the nature of the grace and the mercy of God. And not just that, but an answer to the question, what does the grace and the mercy of God do in the life of an individual? For seven, eight weeks now, we've been looking week after week after week about the unparalleled and amazing nature of the grace and the mercy of God. And tonight what we'll see is the grace and the mercy of God is so substantial, so robust, so amazing that those who receive it and those who begin to wrap their minds around it cannot help but be changed by it. Let me say that again, because that's kind of the main idea that we're going to be hitting for tonight, is that the nature of God is so substantial and robust and amazing that those who have received it cannot help but be changed by it. And tonight, what we're going to be looking at is the story of a man named Abraham, who puts this on display better than anybody else. Abraham is a man probably many of you have heard of, even if this is your first time here tonight. And Abraham is a guy who is the prime example of needing the grace of God. A lot of times when we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we sort of hear about guys like Abraham. They're sort of mythological, historical figures we can't really relate to very well. But the reality is, is that Abraham is a guy just like us. And just like us in the fact that he was really jacked up and we're really jacked up as well. A lot of times people think they can't relate to Abraham. They think he was perfect, think he had his act together. But you look at Abraham and you look how leading up to this story, he struggled mightily. He struggled mightily with fear. And he struggled with fear so much that when he entered the land of Egypt, he was so afraid that the Egyptian pharaoh was going to kill him because his wife Sarah was so attractive that he pretended that they were not spouses, but they were brother and sister. And he handed her over to the pharaoh to do whatever he wanted to with her. 
And then you see right after that, that that Abraham struggles with doubt so much that just following this episode in this story, what Abraham does is he actually has this sort of weird, illegitimate, yet approved extramarital affair with a servant girl so that he can have a son because he's struggling to believe the promises of God, that God will provide a son for he and his, at the time, barren wife, Sarah. And then after that, you see a story where Abraham and Sarah struggle to believe the promises of God so much that every single time Abraham come, or God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to give you and your wife a son, they burst out in laughter. They, li- they literally LOL again and again and again. And God finally says, enough, enough. You've laughed so many times at this promise that I'm going to bring to you. You You're literally going to have to name your son laughter. And that is what Isaac means in Hebrew. It means laughter. Again and again and again, Abraham messes up, which is really good news for us because it means he's the type of guy that you and I can relate to when we're actually humble and self-aware about our shortcomings and our fallings. And yet God, Instead of removing his presence, instead of tossing up his hands and saying, fine, enough, I gave you enough chances, it's over. He relentlessly pursues him, he relentlessly chases him down, and and he transforms him by his grace and by his mercy. And what we see tonight is a glimpse, is a picture to what happens in a man like Abraham's life when he has believed the gospel of God when he believes the gospel of God. And what we will see as well, as Abraham overcomes and shows a new life and puts on display a transformed life, as he puts on display the gospel-centered life for you and for me, what we'll see is a prime example for those of you who, like me, struggle day in, day out, both internally and externally, what the gospel practically does in somebody's life. That's the key question we're looking at. What does the grace of God do in somebody's life? Abraham is our example. All week, I struggled to, how do we package this? How do we help people wrap their minds around this? And I struggled no more when I realized the entire point of the story or the the flow of the story is such that it happens on a mountain. And uh, we in Denver see mountains all the time as we're, you know, on our morning commute and things like that. And even, you know, many of us even climb perfectly good mountains. Even for those of you who have never climbed a mountain, you can probably imagine your mind, like, walking uphill for four hours. That's, that's what it's like to climb a mountain. And that's what Abraham is doing here. He is climbing a mountain. And many of you know that just as you climb a mountain, there are sort of three phases. There is a base, there is the climb, and then there is the summit where you see kind of everything and you, it was finally worth the journey. So tonight we're going to walk through this text in the same way, kind of three major points or ideas. We will see the base for Abraham. We will see the climb. And in the midst of the base and the climb, we will see Abraham overcome some of the great struggles and challenges that you and I encounter on our day in and day out lives. And then following that, we will see Abraham reach the summit where he finally sees things clearly. He finally sees things as they really are. And because Abraham sees things as, really, as they really are, we are able to see things as they really are as well and have the opportunity to live the transformed and redeemed life. Okay, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to first see Abraham's ability to overcome the great external struggle of humanity, the struggle to overcome idolatry, okay? We're going to get into this in a second, but at the base, what we're going to see is Abraham's ability to overcome one of the great human struggles, the external struggle with idolatry. We're going to look. At verse 1, look at verse 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, 
Here am I. Now, you have to keep in mind what's happening here. Abraham's been given a son. It was the son that he had been waiting for, for decade after decade after decade. At this point in the story, Abraham is probably around 100 years old. His son Isaac is probably somewhere around 20 years old. And you think, we've, we've looked at Abraham now. This is the third week we looked at him. And we've seen he's been through a lot. God has asked a lot of him. And he has been faithful and he's taken some significant risks. He left family. He left friends. And you can imagine as he's getting towards his retirement at age 100, thinking to himself, like, surely it's over now, right? Like, surely I can finally relax and finally rest and finally this kind of relationship with God can now move on to my son Isaac. But the, the image that I have in my mind is what it's like for a dude to work like a 12-hour day and then come home and finally get ready to sit down on the lazy boy, turn on the TV, and like pull up the lever for the footrest to go up. And then the wife like bursts into the room and is like, honey, just one more thing. You ever felt that before? That's exactly what Abraham is feeling right here. Just one more thing, except something much more substantial than like, can you take out the trash? But instead, can you give up your one and only son? He says in verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you. Now, you just, again, have to wrap your mind around what what is being asked here. Take your son, your only son, and offer him up as a sacrifice to me. What what Moses is doing here, who who wrote the book of Genesis, what he is doing is slowing down the the flow of the story so you feel the, the tension and the emotion that is being felt in this story. Abraham, take your son. Take your only son. Take your only son whom you love. Take your only son whom you love, on whom the family's legacy and hopes last, and offer him on an altar as a sacrifice for me. If we were going to put it in today's language, here's how it would come. Abraham, take that which is most precious to you and offer him to me. Abraham, you have to make a choice, a choice between that which you love the most and that which you love greatly. Make a choice between your Lord and your son. Make a choice. Who do you love the most, me or your son? And it's in this moment when Abraham makes this choice, when he overcomes this great struggle that you and I face and encounter on a day-in, day-out basis. It's a great external struggle for all of humanity, the struggle with idolatry. Now, for some of you, that may be a familiar struggle. You've been in church. You've heard pastors talk about the struggle with idolatry. Probably for most of you, that's a pretty new concept. We have a lot of people who are new to Christianity. And so you're like I was a couple of years ago. When I hear a struggle with idolatry, I largely think to myself, no, like that was a struggle for people thousands of years ago uh, who worshiped trees. No, you know, you may have traveled to a foreign country. I have. And I've literally seen people in sort of weird spiritual environments take statues and, and put money at the, their feet and burn things at their feet in the hopes that it will provide for them comfort and success. But biblically speaking, when you read the Bible, the greatest struggle that men and women encounter in the Bible is the struggle with idolatry. It's the struggle with idolatry. And what's presented when we're biblically thinking about this is that idolatry is anything in our lives that functions as God in our life. It's anything in our lives that functions as God in our lives. And so what it means is anything, anything 
that provides comfort, that provides joy, that provides satisfaction, that provides uh, comfort, that provides security, anything that functions in our lives in the way that God is meant to function in our lives. And so when I hear that, what I started to process in my own life was thinking about when I was in undergrad at the University of South Carolina in the seven Saturdays every fall where thousands of southern families throughout the southeastern states would make pilgrimage to Mecca, known as Columbia, South Carolina, to come into this house of worship known as williams Bryce Stadium. And previous to coming into the stadium, there would be a great religious feast called tailgating, where people would spend thousands of dollars having food before they would go in and sing songs of praise and worship back and forth as they would root on a bunch of 11 teenage boys who wore helmets and pads. And what was so striking in that moment was that in the times when my beloved South Carolina Gamecocks would lose, which for anybody who is a South Carolina Gamecocks fan knows happens a lot, um, any time that that would happen, what you would see is men Normal men, men who had their entire act together, men who were probably respected in their communities, who had children and who were businessmen and who were probably totally sane the other six days of the week, literally leaving the stadium weeping and screaming when they wouldn't shed a tear at the saddest family crisis. And it's in that moment where an idol, 11 teenage boys, wearing pads, a helmet, and garnet in black colors, have failed to deliver the salvation they yearn for victory over an SEC opponent. It's the same way for women. I see this time and time again, especially in a young church like ours, where women look for a guy who will function as an idol. Usually in our American culture, it is synonymous with the phrase, Mr. Right, the one who will complete me. And what happens in that process as the young lady is looking for Mr. Right, the one who completes her, is that it begins very, very good, but then things start to go bad. And the guy's like not that sure about his faith convictions. And because of that, even though it's not that comfortable for the girl, she says, well, you know, like anything to preserve the relationship. And even though he starts to push physical and sexual boundaries that she's not totally comfortable with. She says, you know, like whatever it takes to preserve the relationship. When things start to go bad and downhill, the girl will act almost like a fanatic in order to preserve the relationship. And then when things go bad and there's a splitting up, the girl ceases to have a reason to want to live and wonders if life has meaning and purpose anymore. Because the idol, a guy to whom she sacrificed money, to whom she sacrificed time, emotions, effort, even her own body to, has failed to deliver the salvation that she so yearned for and hungered for. What I think of is for any of you who go to a concert at any time ever, when you see the people who leave jobs, leave friends, and leave family, and literally make a pilgrimage across the country to follow a band, and they've memorized the scripture of their lyrics, and when that favorite song comes up, they will close their eyes, they'll hold out their hands, and they will sing out in a posture and a manner that can only be described as worship. And in that moment, what you see is idolatry is not a problem that Abraham struggled with. It's not a problem for people overseas, but it's instead a problem that you and I wrestle with on a day-in, day-out basis, that the human heart is fundamentally religious. And as John Calvin put it, that the human heart is at its very core an idol factory, mass-producing, perpetual idol after idol after idol after idol after idol after idol that yearns to steal the authority and the place of God that he is meant to have in your life and in mine. 
And what's so tricky, what you see in this story with Abraham's continual struggle with his desire to have a son, the fact that he will sin against God in order to try to obtain and to make this happen, and his struggle to make a choice between will I follow the Lord or will I protect my son, is that what idolatry is, is in its very nature, something that is very uh, good in our lives. Often it's the most precious things in our lives. And that's what's so dangerous, so tricky about them, is that they're not intrinsically bad, they're not intrinsically obvious. In fact, they're really good things. There's good things that become God things, and because of that, they become really, really bad things. In your life and in mine, that's the most likely thing to take the place of an idol. It's a good thing that becomes God thing, that, takes a re- that becomes a bad thing in your life and in mine. That's what's, I mean, the reality is, is like football is not bad. Like, I hope there's football in heaven by the grace and the mercy of God. Like, that's what I do on my fall Saturdays and Sundays. I, I watch football. Like, the reality is, is that music isn't bad. It's not intrinsically bad. Unless you're a Nickelback fan, then it's very, very bad. But other than that, like music is not very bad. But it can be an idol in our lives. These things that are very good in our lives. We don't have kids, but we have plenty of friends who have had kids. And then they say their kids, like especially their first one, is so likely to become like a little tiny little person who poops, pees, eats, and functions as an idol in their lives on which the entire family's emotions, relationships, money, everything is sacrificed to in order to keep happy. Many of you know this with your jobs. The job in the American culture is sort of the one thing that is untouchable. We can't get close to it. We can't question it. If it keeps you from having relationships, it's fine. If it keeps you from ignoring your family, it's fine. If it keeps you from joining a church, it's fine. It's the untouchable thing. Don't get close to it because it provides security, comfort, happiness, identity, money. It provides everything that you could ever ask or imagine. Don't ask about it. Don't question it. Get out of the way of it. Again, And again and again, what we see in our lives is good things become God things that consequently makes them turn into very bad things. And because of this, you and I perpetually struggle with an external fight to yield and ward off idols again and again and again. What we see here in the life of Abraham is a man who looked who looked the, the most likely thing to become an idol in his life. And he said, I love my son, but I love my Lord even more. And because of that, I answer to him before I answer to my son, and because of that, I will be obedient and I will follow. The story continues. We see that while Abraham at the base of the mountain, as he's making preparations, wards off the external fight with idols. He, he, he now, as he begins to make his climb, starts with an internal struggle as well, the struggle with personal autonomy, one of the great struggles that you and I encounter on a day-in, day-out basis. And as this climb continues in verse 3, we see Abraham's response to what God has called him to do. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So if you've ever seen like a cheesy 90s action movie, Dante's Peak, Cliffhanger, you know exactly what's happening here where there's always a moment before the final great climb where the, the protagonist comes to the base and sort of sees the nature of what it is he's about to take on. That's what Abraham does. He, he, it's exactly what's going on here. Like, I'm seeing the mountain from afar. There was, there was a scene just like this in Cliffhanger, which my wife's not up here. She loves Cliffhanger. I'm the luckiest man alive. Don't tell her I said that. But she loves the movie Cliffhanger and other 90s Sylvester Stallone movies. So 
Verse 5, that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went both of them together. Verse 7, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Again, this is another scene where Moses slows down the pace of the story so that you can feel the full emotion and pressure that is being felt here. He, Isaac, he, he's, he's sort of taking in what's going on here in a very logical basis. He's observing, okay, we're climbing up the mountain. I know we're going to make sacrifice. We have the knife. We have the fire. We have the wood. But like, where is the lamb? And what you see in verse 8, he asks, he has a very logical question. Like, Dad, where is the lamb? In verse 8, Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they went on together. See, it's in this response of Abraham where this question is asked, and it would be so easy to turn back and walk the other way. It would be so easy to stop the climb. It would be so easy to say, this doesn't feel right. It would be so easy. This doesn't seem right cognitively. It would be so easy for Abraham to jump in and take control because he doesn't know if God's going to take care of him or not. That in this story, what Abraham does is lays down his personal autonomy. He lays down his right to run his life. He lays down his right to make sense of the situation and only move forward until God has answered all his questions. And he says, I will not be Lord of my life. This doesn't make sense. I can't really wrap my mind around it. It doesn't feel right. My my heart is struggling with this. But when it comes down to it, I will not function as Lord of my life. I will not prioritize my own personal autonomy. I will lay it down. Because that's what God has called me to do. That is my responsibility. That is the natural response to when you trust that God is in control and he is more after your joy and after your good than you could possibly be. What we see with Abraham is him overcome uh, another great struggle that you and I encounter on a day-in, day-out basis. It's the internal struggle of our hearts. Will we be Lord of our lives or will God be Lord of our lives? Will we run the show or will God run the show? When it comes down to it, who really is in charge? And the problem is, is not only, is it just, are you, is your heart wired in such a way for you to want to function as God as your, of your own life? But the, the other problem is that everything in culture is telling you that you're qualified to do it, that the best thing for you, the most qualified, the most qualified person to run your life is you. If you know it again and again and again, TV, movies, radio, if you listen to the radio, podcasts, they're telling you again and again and again, you're smart enough, you're gifted, you're talented, you're educated enough, run the show. You know that Ben Stein, the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the teacher, you know, Bueller, Bueller, he, he, at a recent college graduation, told students that the key to happiness and success is to follow your heart because it'll never lead you astray. If you eat Dove chocolate, you are have like a one in 50 chance to unwrap a wrapper where it has, I guess, insightful sayings on the inside. And you'll know that one of them says, Follow your heart. It will never lead you astray. You know that if you've ever watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians and you watch the season finale, which 
All of you guys can come up and pummel me at the end of the sermon, okay? But I have to do this. At the, end, at the season finale of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, you have Kim Kardashian getting ready to end a marriage with Chris Humphreys after 72 days weeping and going back and forth with her family in her dressing room where they are pleading with her, do the right thing, keep the marriage going, fight for it, work on it, until finally she blurts out, my heart wants what my heart wants. I can't control it. And it's in that moment where everybody in the family stops protesting, stops objecting, and instead says, well, if that's what your heart wants, then we will support you, we will love you, we will encourage you, and we support you in your decision. Again and again and again, culture tells you, follow your heart's desire, which is just a fancy way of saying, you run the show. You're qualified, you're gifted, you're educated, you're smart, you're self-aware. You are the best person to run your life. And then you come face-to-face with something that's countercultural is the story of Abraham, where he is told to do something that doesn't feel good, that, that cognitively doesn't probably think, doesn't think right. And what he says is, even though it doesn't feel right, even though it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, God is God. He is Lord of my life, and I will lay down my will. Not my will be done, but his will be done. What you need to recognize is that every day we are faced with this decision. We're, we're faced with this in the decisions we make on a day-in, day-out basis. I mean, even something very, very small from maybe the way you structure and prioritize your time, something as large as the way you handle your finances, the way you handle your relationships, where you'll live, what sort of job you'll have, everything comes down to this question, who is going to be Lord of your life? Who's going to be Lord of your life? What is the criteria by which you are even making those decisions? By the nature of what I do, I sit down a lot of times with people who are trying to make pretty major decisions. I sit down with people who are trying to figure out what to do with jobs and location all the time, relationships, all over and over and over again. What I found just from observation is that people have multiple criteria in terms of how they make their decisions. They, they, sort of for simplicity's sake, I mean, I, I see a lot of times people... People use their heart as a, as a major criteria. It's sort of the way that I'm feeling, my, my gut instinct about a situation. People use the, their mind as a criteria. Uh, what sort of logically makes sense? And then for those who are Christians, there's also sort of the filter of the Scripture and what God has said and spoken into their lives. And what I tell people again and again and again, it's not enough just to have multiple factors in terms of how you make decisions. But you also need to have some sort of like criteria of what order those decisions are made in as well. It's baseball season now. Spring training just started, and Rockies opening day is now exactly a month away, so you knew like baseball illustrations are going to start gearing up. And the way I explain it to a lot of people, it's like a manager who sets a starting rotation for his team. Any of you who aren't familiar with baseball, at the beginning of the season, the manager takes his pitchers, and he puts them in some sort of rotation, and he puts somebody first. And that person who's first, it doesn't happen by accident, but that person is the ace of the rotation. And that ace of the rotation is the guy who is put out to be the best, to be the most qualified, who to be the most talented, to, to win games for the team, which is the entire objective. And by him putting them out on the mound first and on opening day, he says, this is the guy we're leading with. This is the guy we trust. This is the guy who we have our faith in. And what we see with Abraham is he has some sort of criteria in mind as well. And it's not just what he feels. It's not just what he thinks. But it's what God says. And it's not just those three things. But the ace of his starting pitching rotation when it comes to how he makes decisions is what God has said. Sure, it doesn't make sense what God is telling me to do. Sure, it doesn't feel right what God is telling me to do. But the scriptures trump everything else. God takes priority and I will worship and I will obey. What it means just very, very practically for those of you who have struggles in your marriage and you're trying to make some sort of sense 
of how do I work through struggles in my marriage, just like anybody who is married has struggles in their marriage, is that probably logically for you, you have an airtight case for why you are consistently the wrong spouse. Like you could probably put together like a 30-minute PowerPoint presentation for why you were right, your spouse was wrong, and if they would just change and fix things, you wouldn't have these problems in your marriage anymore. And you probably have these feelings as well. You probably say to yourself in the midst of conflict, if you could just feel the way I feel, if you just understood my heart, if you just understood my desires, if you would just do the hard work of understanding the way that I feel, then we we wouldn't have these problems anymore. And yet in the midst of it, what happens is God comes in and he speaks. And he says, marriage is not primarily about your happiness as much as it is about your holiness. And because of that, it's not about what you think, it's not about what you feel, it's about what I have spoken. That marriage at its core is about two flawed, messed up people doing life together, practicing rhythms of patience and grace and forgiveness and repentance. And the entire purpose of the relationship is to conform and refine one another increasingly more into the image of God. And so in the midst of that, the logical objections fade the emotional objections fade. God has spoken, you worship and obey. That's what Abraham does here. May have not thought, may have not felt right intellectually, it may have not felt right emotionally, but God has spoken. And because he was first in the way that he made decisions, because of that, he worshiped and he obeyed. He continued up the mountain and he finally reaches the summit. And we see this. In verse 9, we're going to read verse 9 through 13. Abraham reaches the summit. And just like if you've ever climbed a mountain, never climbed a 14er, you know when you reach the summit, you finally can see everything around you very clearly. Abraham, in the midst of emotional and intellectual objections, finally comes to a place where he sees the truth clearly. And this is what he sees in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know now that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So what happens here is very very intense. Abraham has his knife ready, slay his son, and right before that, an angel of the Lord comes and stops him. And what God does is he provides a substitute to die in the place of Isaac. He provides a ram, and Abraham sacrifices him instead of his son. And what's so interesting about this story is not only what, provi- what God provided, or what is interesting about this story, let me back up, is not only that God provided, but also what God provided. It's not only that God provided, but it's what God provided. Because if you follow the story, what happened along the way is that God, or as Abraham was going up the mountain, Isaac asked him, he says, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. And then he gets up to the mountain, and what happens? God provides a ram instead of a lamb. And what I love about this scene is Abraham's not even phased by it. He just, he just sacrifices. He doesn't send it back to the kitchen like, hey, I ordered lamb, not ram, like, can you get this right, God? But instead, what does he do? He, 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 he obeys, he sacrifices, he worships. And in that moment, what Abraham is doing is a declaration. What, what is it that he saw? What he saw is that the Lord provided. 
He says that in verse 14. It's exactly what he ended up naming this place. The Lord will provide. And even though he expected a ram and he got provided a ram, what Abraham was saying in that moment through no objection is that a greater lamb is coming who will be provided and who will answer all the questions and the objections and we will finally see clearly in the way we intended to see. For those of you who know the rest of the story of the Bible, you know that this is the entire theme. Instead of Abraham asking, where is the lamb? We know where the lamb is. Isaiah, in anticipation of this, of talking of Jesus, he he says this in Isaiah chapter 53. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. When John the Baptist sees Jesus for the very first time, he looks at him and he says, behold, and he cries out, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world. What you see in this story, what Abraham saw very clearly is that the Lord will provide, that the Lord will provide a lamb. And that's exactly the rest of the biblical story, that God does provide, not just, not just financially, not just jobs, not, not, not any of these peripheral issues, but he provides his son to be crucified on a cross to take away the sins of the world. Well, the entire point of the story is, is a pushing and a looking forward to Mount Calvary. That, that what we see with Isaac is, yes, he was born of a promise. Yes, he was born by a miracle. Yes, the climax of his life is him walking up a mountain where he carries wood on his back on which he will be sacrificed, and yet God chooses to spare him to, and provides instead. And what we see with Jesus is the exact same thing, with one catch. What we see is a man who was born of a promise. What we see is a man who was born by the virtue of a miracle. What we see is a man who, at the climax of his life, climbs of a mountain, carrying wood on his back on which he will be crucified. And yet God does not spare him because he is in the process of providing the lamb. And in that moment, what we see at Mount Calvary is what Abraham saw very dimly in Mount Moriah. God will provide. And it's that, it's that kernel of truth. It's, it's that name of which Abraham ended up being so blown away with that he named the place the Lord will provide that, that enables us to live the life that we just saw described of Abraham. As he worked to overcome idolatry and the external struggle, to cling to all sorts of things in our culture that will take the place of God. What propelled him, what what moved him forward was not rules, not duty, not obligation, but instead the conviction that the Lord will provide. And it's the same way in your life and mine. What what propels us, what enables us to do that is not a list of rules, it's not guilt, it's not willpower, but it's instead seeing clearly what we see on Mount Calvary. The Lord has provided. And in that moment where where it's difficult to sacrifice, in that moment where it's difficult to give up, where it's, where it's difficult to count precious the things of the Lord and we cling to the things of the world. What you do is you look to the Mount Calvary where you see God has provided his son through the gospel. He has made the ultimate sacrifice for us and that frees us up and enables us to make any sort of sacrifice for him. In the same way, as Abraham worked to overcome the internal struggle of autonomy and laying down his rights as being Lord of his life, what propelled him was not that he, he, he just sort of sucked it up and lifted himself up by his own bootstraps and just made it happen, but it was the conviction that the Lord will provide. 
And the same for us. What enables us to do that is not, is not willpower. It isn't a list of rules, but it's instead the conviction the Lord has provided. And when you look to the cross of Christ where God has provided his son, what you see is that God will take care of you and watch after you and bless you and meet your most basic and fundamental need, a need you probably weren't even aware of that you had when he met it. Again and again and again, we are freed from idols. We are freed from having to be in control of every little thing and having to run our lives and having to, be, having to have the final say of, of the way things go down. And instead, what we are liberated by is the, the gospel and the cross of Christ to make things happen. What's so beautiful about this is that in Abraham's life and in ours, is this isn't a duty, it isn't an obligation, it's not something that you have to do, it's something you get to do. It is a blessing. This past week I was reading a business management book by a guy who's a Christian business owner, and he said his biggest observation of the millennial generation, which is like 99% of us in the room, is that we haven't lived long enough to recognize that the things that we look to for our security and identity can be taken away from us in an instant. He said, all you have to do is know about 100 years worth of history to know that the things that we find our identity and security in can be taken away in an instant. That nations have risen and nations have fallen. Empires have risen. Empires have fallen. Businesses that people look to to say, this is a business that's too big to to fail, have failed. Industries where people said, I have job security, I will be taken care of, I will retire, I will have a nice uh, retirement package, I won't have to work after the age of 65. They have gone to bed rich and they have woken up poor in the morning. Again and again and again and again. Human history is the story of men and women putting their hopes in things that they think are absolutely, absolutely secure and then they are taken away and they are heartbroken. And so what's so beautiful about this story is that what God is doing is drawing attention. He is drawing, he is drawing your attention and mine to the one thing and to the best thing that can never be taken away from us. The gospel of God, the unconditional love of Christ, the favor that is found by accepting by grace through faith of what Jesus has done for us. And what he puts on display is this is not only the one thing that can never be taken taken away from you. It is the one thing you can't live without, and it's the one thing that makes it possible to live without anything else. And again and again and again, what Abraham sees, seems, sees through a, a glass darkly, what we see clearly here today is that God has provided his son, and it enables us to live the gospel-centered and gospel-repelled life. As we conclude, here, here's what I want to do. We're going to look, just very briefly, at a New Testament passage where the Apostle Paul basically reference this story very directly and very, very clearly. Uh, Paul was a guy, for those of you who don't know him very clearly, he's, he's a guy we can relate to. I mean, he was a guy who had a very impressive resume, very educated, talented, was very, very accomplished. But by following Jesus, he lost all of that. He lost everything. He lost his job. He lost his favor. He lost his reputation. He lost everything. And one of the pinnacle expressions, one of the chief explanations of this passage comes from Paul in Romans chapter 8 where he talks about the unconditional love and the favor of God and what it has done in his life. This is a long passage. Somebody asked me what part of it I'm going to cut out. And I said none because it's all really, really important. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read this. If you want to read it along, you're welcome to read it along. But this, for those of you who are in Christ, this is your promise. This is your blessing. This is, what live, this is the promise that you live under. This is the banner that you fly. The love of God that is unconditional and for you. I'm going to read it. If you want to read along, you're welcome to. If not, just hear it and take it in. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ, this promise is true in your life. Claim it, believe it, apply it to your life, and let it propel you to live the life that is put on display by Abraham, the gospel-centered life, the life that you yearn to live, that I yearn yearn to live, the great cause to which we are meant to give our hearts away to. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for uh, your grace and your mercy. We thank you that the grace doesn't just save us from something, but saves us to something as well. And what we see with Abraham is a man who overcomes many of the struggles that we face and we encounter on a day-in and day-out basis. We see the struggle of clinging to the idols around us, to have something else function as God of our lives. We see the struggle, the internal struggle of autonomy, that we want to be Lord of our life and be in control of all things. And yet what Abraham says is not my will, but your will be done. What Abraham says is what is most precious to me is God himself. And God, I pray that we would not just try to model that example. We wouldn't just look at that and try to work really hard to demonstrate that. But instead, we would see what Abraham saw. We would see that you will provide and that you have provided. And that the heart of Christianity is your son on the cross crucified, proclaiming that the lamb of God has been slain to take away the sins of the world. This is what we treasure and this is what we love. God, we thank you for doing this for us and let us continue to worship and love you and know you well. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.